Come down to the little garden with me. Come go with me. Come go and see. I'm Chris Greenspawn. You're listening to the season one finale of SGV Weekly, your fix of the 626. Back when I went to Mount Sac, there was this cool looking old man who always hung out by the 26 building, swarmed by adoring fans. He was the professor who sponsored the Creative Writing Club. I checked out one of their meetings once. They seemed really tight-knit, and I didn't feel confident enough to join. None of their poems rhymed. So I joined the radio station instead. But looking back, I think I missed out. Right now, Richie and the gang are in trouble. Someone fucked up. Because around the end of last year, this poet from Pomona started blowing up. Literary journals, NPR, all that shit. And he was in the creative writing club at Mount Sac. Listen, this is one of his titles. Suspended from school, the Pachuco's grandson watches happy days while his homie fulfills prophecy. I went to Cafe Con Libros to get a copy of his book and totally forgot his name and the title when I got there. But it's called An Incomplete List of Names by Michael Torres, and it's really fucking good. Fonzie laughs and everyone joins. I don't know why. They don't either. The credits roll. The outro plays. My homie jumps the fence by the track by where the ice cream man always parks after school and the chain links rattle after him. Torres joins us for the behind-the-scenes story of how he went from the quiet guy in his graffiti crew to living that paid poet life. Grab your tissues. It's a bittersweet story about the east end of the valley and the season one finale of SGV Weekly. Now for some local news. The Tribune reports, sheriffs fatally shot a man suspected of stealing clothing on Monday in El Monte. An officer said he chased a man who fit a description up the Durfee Avenue off-ramp of the 10, where the two got into a fight. A second officer arrived and the unarmed suspect was shot, according to Lieutenant Brandon Dean. Dean says body camera footage is being investigated to determine if the man took an officer's weapon. The Pasadena Star reports, former City of Industry Councilman Abraham Cruz is suing industry, accusing three council members of using public funds for home improvements, including a Los Angeles Rams-themed man cave. Industry's council members pay $800 a month to rent city-owned housing. The city's housing authority is appointed by the council. Cruz wants the difference in cost for market rate housing returned to the public. His suit also alleges that in 2018, the council killed a proposal to build more housing in order to maintain control over the city's small electorate, and it demands that industry sever contracts with vendors that benefit its council members. And the Star also reports, some Altadena residents are surprised and angry about solar panels built by Pasadena Unified. The Altadena Arts Magnet School recently had solar power installed in the corner of its playground, adjacent to some backyards. It was a three-year project that apparently included zero neighborhood discussion. Residents are irritated that their view of the mountains is blocked, gardener noise at the school is amplified, and the panels send hot reflections into one of their homes. District officials apologized and said there had been a public meeting, which no one attended. The project was intended as a cost-saving measure. Earlier versions of the design were further away from homes and didn't involve cutting down a tree that gave shade. Residents want the panels removed. The district is working on a compromise. And the hate group First Works Baptist Church is reportedly leaving their location on Tyler Avenue in El Monte. 
The social media account and podcast, The DL Weekly Show, says sources told them of the move, and a commenter claims they saw a moving truck in front of the church Monday night with a police escort. And that's some of this week's news around the 626. After the break, we go inside the acclaimed poetry of Michael Torres to understand a pain you could only know if you've loved the SGV. SGV Weekly is supported by Callback Yesterday, an extremely personal podcast from Public Radio's John Raby. Callback Yesterday is about love, loss, family, nostalgia, and anything else that makes living life richer and deeper. Available wherever you get your podcasts. John encourages you to support SGV Weekly with a generous donation like he did. Does your Instagram feed need more than thirst traps and cheese pools? Follow SGV Weekly for interview clips with everyday people and pictures of the rowdiest cars in the 626. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Rate and review the show to help us get it out there and make a better program for the San Gabriel Valley. Visit sgvweekly.com for expanded content from each episode and a link to our Patreon. Give if you can and support citizen journalism. Thanks. Now back to our featured interview. Michael Torres is a poet from South Pomona, and he's the author of the book, An Incomplete List of Names. Back when I used to do graffiti and we would go out and you would do a roll call and you would try to put up everybody who's in the crew, but there would always be like a name you forgot. It was kind of like a joke, you know, you would forget a name. So it's like an incomplete list of names. But once I left home, the incomplete list of names sort of like grew in what that meant as far as like the guys who grew up and went to jail and the guys who died and the people who, you know, we forget about. And like, so the list is always incomplete because there's names that aren't able to make it onto the list for whatever reason. Dyer, Kaon, Cyrus, Mace, Rage, Teal. That's a very incomplete list of names of homies who he painted with. Doing graffiti was like a rite of passage in Pomona. Torres's name was Remick. When I was in high school, I felt very disconnected to like my education and I felt like I could just pass through all those classes like nothing and, and no one would really pay attention or or see me in any certain way. So Remick was born out of like wanting to create that identity on my own then and, and like be part of something. Remick now, I really think that Remick lives in my writing. I feel like Remick is a more braver me. When he comes back home, that's still his name. But now he teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota and the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. An incomplete list of names is a collection of mixed emotions and memories from leaving Pomona that makes you wonder how much of you only lives in your hometown. It was a great pleasure to talk with Torres about his book and to listen to him read from it. My hometown is a man riding a bicycle with no chain. His legs, a too quick clock, a kind of cruel that tells me any time away from home is too long. Pomona becomes a man asking if I want to buy his MP3 player. He raises headphones to my face. Listen, he says. No one believes him. But he doesn't say about what. It's how they say yes, but don't look. I nod. He talks about his daughter who works at AutoZone, who's the manager now the jefe, but his son, who I'm certain I went to school with, 
who walked into fifth grade one morning with shaved eyebrows and sat down without saying a word, who never spoke to anyone ever again. He does not mention, not even once. Where have all my classmates gone? Where I grew up has nowhere to live, but he says he'll be all right. He'll be all right. He'll be all right. Cause the lady from the next block over owes him for mowing her lawn. And have I seen a Bible around? No one's going to pick it up, he says, not unless it had a hundred dollars in it. Wouldn't that be something? He's nodding, he's balancing himself on the bike, he's trying to leave, but will I be here tomorrow? He might be around, my town's always around, so how about that mp3? I can keep it if I want, no. How about for ten bucks? My town is presenting its calloused palm, now my town relentless, pedaling, like everything is alright, like everything is alright, like a ferris wheel no one's going to ride. Look at it spin through the evening, each basket scooping sunlight, then shadow. The carnival worker we turn away from calls for us and keeps calling long after he knows we're gone. How do you describe Pomona to people who have never been there? Have you had to describe it in interviews? Never. And I was thinking about that question and it's like, Pomona to me, it's a big town but it's also like a tight knit community in your neighborhood. And so like, even nowadays, like if my mom or someone needed something, even though I'm all the way over here, I can just call up one of my homies and ask them to like, Hey, do me this favor and go, go by the pad and check out, you know, help my dad with something or whatever. And they'll do it. So it's kind of like Pomona's like that to me is very neighborly. So which school did you go to? Uh, I went to Philadelphia elementary school. <laughs> I went to Simon's middle school and I went to Diamond Ranch High School um, reluctantly. Diamond Ranch. I was expecting you to say Gary. I, I signed up for it. I don't know if they still do it, but they had that lottery where like you have to like put your name in to see if you can get into Diamond Ranch. And I didn't get in with the lottery. So I was like, I had my books and my classes and everything for Gary. But then at the last second, I got into Diamond Ranch or whatever. And my mom put me there. I think she just thought it would be like, a better high school because all the stuff you hear about Gary, like the bad stuff, quote unquote. Torres graduated from Diamond Ranch in 04, but most of his homies went to Gary. Reading about Remick's school days is kind of like staring at him through the classroom window while he and his teacher ignore each other. But poems about school nights still belong to the homies he painted buildings with, I Run Streets and The Wanted Kings. Down, one. The Lambo doors lifted when Miguel's Accord pulled up and a system-bumping holler, if you hear me, rattled each window. We emerged 16, claiming new names on our tongues. Some of us had cement slabs for cheekbones. But there I was, chubby and baggy jeans like candle wax in the sun, soft over the road. I couldn't be loud enough. We looked at the pavement, sweaty with sunlight. Miguel said, the streets are hot. The homies jumped back in the car. I didn't want to be left. Inside, I turned my hat and stuck my head out, como un perro waiting for someone to look at us too long. It got late outside. I yelled at the dark. My name devoured the air. Under street lamps, we glistened with rage. My mother didn't want to ask. When I got home late, paint covered the hands strangers shook at school the next day, saying, I saw your name up. That's down. So what hooked you into poetry? At the very beginning, my sister, my older sister, Rose, she used to like recite poetry to me when I was a kid. She's like 
about 18 years older than me. So like when I was a real young kid, she was like in college. So that like sort of stuck with me as I grew up and started like not rebelling necessarily, but just being out and about in the streets. And so like that was always kind of in the back of my head. And then it wasn't until like later on in my teenage years when I was like really into hip hop that like I discovered like Tupac had a book of poems and it kind of carried on into community college at Mount Sac where like, you know, I took creative writing class and poetry was always the thing that most interested me. At Mount Sac, Torres found the first educators who really cared about him. Bruce Williams, John Brantingham, and Lloyd Aquino. His poetry became more detailed from critique in the Creative Writing Club and inspiration at Culturama, the college arts festival. But finding this new home was a fluke. Honestly, I only ended up going to Mount Sac because I went with a friend of mine to the counselor's office in high school. And the counselor asked me like, oh, you know, are you going to go to college after high school? And I was like, I don't know, I guess. He's like, here's like local community college. And I like filled out the application right then and there and didn't really think too much of it. You know, I, I went to Mount Sac for like seven years. I didn't know what I was doing for the first two or three at all. Like I was just kind of going to school part-time and working full-time. So it took me a while. So Mount Sac like helped me. It gave me the space and time to like figure those things out. It was a cocoon he'd break out of though. After transferring to UC Riverside, Torres had the opportunity to spend a month in Paris in 2012. That was irreversible. Seeing so many new things flipped a switch in him. He decided to leave home so he could expand as a writer. And I don't mean this in a bad way. Like Pomona seemed, Pomona seemed small, as in there's a greater world out there. But also I, I didn't like that feeling and I had to figure out why. And I think leaving for a longer period of time and then like finally moving to the Midwest was a way for me to actually think about what does that smallness of Pomona mean? Like, why am I thinking that? He moved to Minnesota to get his master's of fine art and was given a lot of time to think about why he left home. It was six years between moving there and getting the book published. Torres seems to know himself and the world more now, but not without falling from both of those things. For a while. What's the book about? Um... I think the book's about admission, like admitting, admitting like a certain tenderness, despite like the cost of that tenderness, a tenderness for a place, for Pomona. And I think that tenderness comes out of almost desperation because the speaker, me, has like left that place. And so he's really trying to reach back for it, like a reaching back. From Elegy with Roll Call. Six, confession. In my attempt to escape vanishing, I left and thus defeated my own purpose. I told friends I'm going to Minnesota because I could not say I can't be here. And not knowing the place, they could only imagine me going into the state's large name. I'm the one who left, so I can't say for sure what became of those boys. I wasn't there. The further away I am, the harder I look for home. Why is there a stated rebellion in your book against the idea of making good and getting out of the hood? I think that idea came to me when I had moved to Minnesota as I was looking back at Pomona and thinking like Pomona's too small for me to live is like, I'm like dissing it. And so I feel like that's part of like what happens when you take someone who quote unquote grew up in the hood and they go into an academic path is they're supposed to like 
leave the hood and you don't come back is a sort of idea. And I just didn't like that anymore. I didn't like that because it said so much about not just the place, about the people that come from there. And I was like, but those people are people I love. And I was just like really struggling with that idea. And part of that was like thinking like, there's nothing wrong with the way I talk. Like I don't use slang. Slang is what someone else calls it because they're unfamiliar with it. And they're like, maybe it scares them because it's something they don't know, but slang isn't bad. Slang is how we talk. And so like part of that thinking too, is why I have like the word fool or the word homies in the book instead of friends, instead of like this person, I'll say this fool because there's nothing wrong with communicating like that. You know what I mean? And so like, it's weird because even though I took this academic route, I was actively against academia in the sense that it excludes people. Right. I'm saying like all these people can go to college too. And it's not like, oh, then they can go back to Pomona and they can stay true to those roots too. From Elegy with Roll Call, 7, 2003. I don't know the names of those boys who painted Pomona the same years I did. Not the names their mothers gave them anyway. But I saw what they wrote, how each moniker made a reputation that loomed so large a garden appeared there, and in place of what proctors and principals called our futures. It's true. We cared for the calamity we planted, rewriting our names each night. Now that I'm gone, I ask myself if pride is what makes leaving easier. Does rupture begin only after its realization? In this book, what were you trying to express about masculinity in the homies? I think... First, I was setting out to at least write down these memories I had kept from childhood. And most of them had to do with like different experiences of masculinity. And I don't know why I kept those memories, but that's why I started writing them at first. And then I think I realized that poetry and in poems was where I could talk about masculinity and wonder about the ways that we were brought up because in a poem, I don't have to have an answer. A poem is just like looking at something and kind of like taking it and blowing it up and kind of moving it around and seeing what's there. And so I think even back then I knew that certain ways of being in the masculine sort of arena affected a person negatively. And I knew that and I, I or I knew it was like unhealthy in a way, but you also can't go against you know, the community you're a part of, or at least I didn't think I could. I think, I thought I just had to kind of fall in line with all the stuff that the guys were doing. Down, one. By morning, all of us talked about the boy who got shot after school. So at recess, we found the computer lab to look for bloodstains, a chip somewhere in the paneling, and stared at the opening for long enough that it seemed to grow larger a tunnel we might slip into before escaping as men we thought we could be. I made a fist, not sure what to say. Miguel said, that fool was down for his shit. He asked me if I was down for my shit. I wasn't sure what he meant, but I was like, yeah. Yeah, he said, sock me then. My entire body gripped. He laughed, the bell rang, I laughed. One boy behind another like a row of knuckles. We marched into class, then out of childhood. What can you say about it positively? 
the funny thing is there's still loyalty. There's still, but I don't know if I can separate the loyalty without the potential of violence because like, I remember telling this to a friend who I've made in the last couple of years, but I was like, I can't make friends today like the friends I have from back in the hood because they loved me in a way, in a very masculine way, which is to say they were loyal to me and I was loyal to them. And if it would have came down to it, they would have died for me and I would have died for them. And that loyalty is just, you can't find that sort of loyalty really anywhere now. But it's also like that has this sort of like very violent subtext. But um, I don't know, I guess if it's without that, then like loyalty is a thing and like honor. At the end of your poem, Mexican America, your father says to you, When buying the newspaper, pay for one, but make sure to take two. One for yourself, one for who you cannot be. What did you mean by that? I know you said that sometimes you write poems to talk about stuff you can't answer, but you ask that question anyway. So I think that poem, and it's like a two-part sort of poem in the book where there's like the white America and the Mexican America. Those two poems were written in Minnesota when I was really starting to think about my Mexican American identity in a very white rural Minnesota. And so depending on the situation, I'm either accepted for something or not accepted for something. And so there's almost like, I'm almost having to be split. Like there's almost two of me. I italicize Spanish in my poems, although I hardly speak it in my everyday. Is this forgery? And the memory of like the father getting the newspaper, that's based off an actual memory that like my dad used to take me to like the corner store and he would like, put a couple quarters in for the newspaper. And when he opened it up, he would be like, here, one for you, one for me. And like, and I always thought that was funny. My mom and my sister thought that was like bad and that he shouldn't have been like showing me that. But I also thought like in some very small way, my dad was trying to like, and I could be, I'm, I'm making this up, right? Or I'm just like projecting or something, but he was like getting back at a system that made him sort of abandon his identity as a Mexican so that he could assimilate and be accepted into an American culture that he wanted to be. But like, I think once he got there, cause he's from Mexico, but once he like became a citizen, I think there are things he thinks that he lost. Two tiny photographs of my father. In one, he's all cowboy hat and hand on the gun at his waist somewhere in Jalisco. In the other, he's a Desi Arnaz smile as if to say, I told you so. And so that newspaper anecdote was like a way that that passes down generationally this idea that one might not be enough no matter which direction you go. Pretty obvious that life can't go back to the way it was, but it's hard to know where to go next. Before I contacted Michael, I read somewhere online that he wanted to challenge himself to do different things now that his book is out. He also said that he doesn't throw away any poems, ever. I guess I thought he meant that maybe these were traumas or ideas he wanted to leave behind now that he's expressed them. Nah, I don't think so. I think for a while now I've understood writing and being an artist not as a form of therapy, but what I really like about the word understand, like the meaning and the etymology of the word understand is to stand in the midst of. And so like having written this collection is 
to have like stood in the midst of all these things that I like grapple with or have grappled with. And so they become in their familiarness, they become less threatening and less, I become less afraid of them because I become more familiar with them. Right. I can hold these things more. I can stand in the middle of them, which is what's exciting about the next project because I don't know what it is. And I, I don't know what I'll be standing in the midst of. For now, let's close out with a poem from near the end of Torres's collection. It sums up what he eventually realized by leaving Pomona. The title references his work with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. From my classroom window at the prison before students arrive. Because the blinds stay open, I see birds. I watch how men watch those birds. They monitor flight paths and a soaring appetite for the crumbs they shouldn't have pocketed from chow. The indifferent birds ask for nothing, yearn for nothing, except perhaps the sky, which is nothing to them but magnetic blue wind, their one great war of journey. I've been thinking about mine lately, my own great war. Once, I met a man who'd been waiting hours for a storm to hit. At the park, he told me how difficult flight is for birds. He stared at the humming sky and disappeared. Later that night, I could not fall asleep not with a fact like that. Instead, I sat at my coffee table and fed a dying rubber fig tree filtered water and the eggshells I broke apart, calling them my little countries. I thought of being president. Then I asked myself, why can't I be king? When I arrived at the idea of God, I began to float. When I woke, I understood my only burden is that of a simple life of a man who can go home and think and care for plants that do not know he is their father. If I am no one to these leaves, to whom do I belong? Thus, my great war is with myself, a wingspan of stirring thoughts that ask what's next that wait for my response, like the men beyond this window. Breadcrumbs, tiny questions for birds. Each man tossing a piece at the air anticipates a swooping answer tries not to think of what goes uneaten, of what falls towards death, wet and certain, that patch of grass they walk, its cold blades. It's late October, every step stiff and speechless. Michael Torres is a poet from South Pomona and the author of the book, An Incomplete List of Names. Pick one up at Cafe Con Libros in Pomona, or click the link on this episode at sgvweekly.com. And that's it for season one of SGV Weekly. As you may know, I work various jobs in radio, and I'm about to go into a busy season. I hope to be back before too long, with more stories about the people who make the San Gabriel Valley such a beautiful and important place to live. Thanks to everyone who came on the show, and everyone who listened. Our theme song is Carry Home by The Gun Club, courtesy of Manifesto Records. Ambient music by my brother Kevin Greenspawn. Logo design by Felipe Flores and my sister Rita Greenspawn. I'm Chris Greenspawn. This is SGV Weekly. Change. I'll change.
say about seven maybe eight years ago I was um, in this club at Mount Sac called Meals for Mankind and they would just um, like do feedings right they would just give away food Not they wouldn't collect money because that's taxable they'd collect food and so I came up with the idea hey let's do one in Pomona because there's a lot of needy people in Pomona and we, um, first we were at like a park, just like trying to give away this like spaghetti we made there. That wasn't really working out. A couple people came by. We we're at Hamilton Park, um, which I guess is off Holt. Um, mm-hmm. And then we were like, okay, well, let's just like divide this shit up and just kind of like drive down Holt and look for people and ask them if they want any. We do that. And so we're on Holt. I wish I could remember exactly what the cross street was, but I'm in front of one of, you know, a hundred strip malls on Holt. And there's a guy sitting on the curb, uh, in not like right by the street, but on a, a little raised curb next to like a, you know, cell phone repair store or something like that. Yeah. And he's sitting there with a bike and one of his feet is completely wrecked it's like i don't know if he got run over or somebody Mm. beat the shit out of him or what but it is uh his foot is like 90 degrees to the right of where it should be and just kind of hanging by like a bag of bones you know like a really fractured ass shin and ankle damn yeah real real brutal and um give this guy some spaghetti and he's like yeah fuck yeah this is cool and then after that i see him right away on the bicycle, you know, that he pedals with one foot, you know, um, I guess I didn't watch him for that long. So I didn't want to stare, but he probably would have had to like keep kicking the pedal back or something to Mm -hmm. keep getting leverage on it. Um, and as soon as I saw that poem's title in the book, that guy just flashed into my mind Mm -hmm. and I I can't like read it and not think of him. 